right, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you guys want to open up there, Nehemiah chapter 4. Continuing our series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, looking at exile and coming back and Nehemiah rebuilding. Last week we talked about Nehemiah and his work as they began the, the work on the wall, as they... Um, as he, he kind of shows up on the scene, uh, assesses the situation, takes a look at the state of uh, Jerusalem, the state of the city, the state of the walls around the city, uh, and kind of begins this long, hard, uh, just gigantic task of rebuilding the city wall around Jerusalem. That's what the rest of the book is going to be about, is building up this wall, uh, which if you don't if, 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 if you're reading that and you're like, well, what does it matter what happens with a city wall around Jerusalem, you know, so long ago, what does that have to do with me? I think there's a lot that we learn from this and what God is trying to do and teach us through such a simple, I say simple project, it's a simple project in the grand scheme of history, but a pretty massive project to undertake uh, for Nehemiah. And last week we talked about Nehemiah's approach was one that, that echoed the words of Winston Churchill uh, in his first address to the nation as prime minister of England uh, in World War II, where he told them, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Churchill and Nehemiah had a lot in common on that day as they began the long work and the road ahead of them. That address from Churchill came on May 13th. Just four weeks later, those words from Churchill would prove to be prophetic as the British army would be pinned against the coast of France in the English Channel. You guys seen that movie Dunkirk? Anybody seen that movie Dunkirk? It's a pretty good little movie. It talks about Operation Dynamo, and what had happened is they had been pinned up against the, the French coast, up against the English Channel, uh, it, French soldiers, but primarily the, the English uh, soldiers had been uh, pinned there. They were forced to abandon their artillery, they were forced to abandon all their equipment, uh, and the troops had to be ferried away by the British Navy, but also by every British citizen that had a boat and could get across the channel to pick them up and ferry them uh, away. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool story in, uh, in history there. But they, so they get there, and, and that's, what, that, that's what happened. And, and this was just four weeks after Churchill had said, we have this massive, this massive thing that is coming towards us, this massive struggle and suffering that will be before us. And what happened there is effectively the, the British military and the citizens managed to salvage a modest defeat from a catastrophic defeat. Nonetheless, at the time, it was a brutal reality check for the British people. France was now Hitler's and all the world uh, watched as it seemed as though Hitler had turned his gaze toward London and towards the British people seemed as though he was ready to continue his march across Europe right over the English Channel to take over Britain as well. And then with most of Europe defeated, with America still 18 months away from getting into the war, it seemed as though Great Britain was facing down this German giant for all intents and purposes alone on the Western Front. And then on June 4th, again just a few weeks after his initial address, Churchill would then deliver another one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century. He would be before Parliament, and he would say that this was not the first time that a nation has sought the end of the British Empire, but just like before, they would not back down. And so I've actually got a clip that we're going to show from the movie uh, The Darkest Hour. It's just about a minute and a half long. 
If it cuts the live stream, I'm sorry. I can't get like I can't get copyright stuff for this. So hopefully that won't happen. But I want to show this clip, and I want you to hear his speech. Lots of checks of Europe and many old and famous states have have fallen or may fall into the the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end! We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! So that speech that that Churchill gave inspired and rallied the the British people to endure the onslaught that would happen over the next 18 months, which was the, uh, the Battle of Britain. And that resolve that he had that basically said, we will not give up, we will not surrender, we will fight wherever the battle is... And that resolve was what was absolutely necessary for the moment and for those people. They were at war and they had to be ready for the fight of their lives. You say, well, what does this have to do with Nehemiah? Why are we talking about World War II and not talking about Jerusalem? Well, I think when you look at chapter 4, you're going to see that that moment from, from Churchill echoes a lot of what Nehemiah faces in these early days as the wall begins. I think we will again see how Churchill's leadership and Nehemiah's leadership kind of, kind of mirror one another. It probably doesn't hurt the fact that I was reading a book about Churchill the same time I began studying Nehemiah, preparing for this series. But I can't help but see how the two overlap and how the two work together. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at chapter 4, and I just want to see what it is that Nehemiah is facing, what it is that he is doing, and how he responds to what he is facing. So Nehemiah chapter 4 Verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, In the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish and the burned ones at that? So the wall was just in complete ruins, and he's basically saying, what are they going to do? Pick up the the destroyed stones and build the wall with that? What in the world do they think they're going to do? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on that wall, it will break down their stone wall. So what Nehemiah does here is he introduces to us, or at least reintroduces, the opposition against their building project. These two guys have already established themselves as kind of the chief uh, enemies, the chief antagonists to, the, to Nehemiah, to his team, and to his work. And they began by trying to send these veiled threats toward Nehemiah. We saw that in chapter 2 last week. And 
Uh, he he kind of sent these, these veiled threats toward them and toward what they were doing in Jerusalem. And here they make their opposition a little bit more pronounced, a little bit more obvious. And they begin to mock Nehemiah. And they begin to mock the people of Jerusalem. And they begin to say, what do you think you're doing? There's no way you can pull this off. This is ridiculous. You guys look foolish. Have you seen what you're doing? You're so bad at this. You don't even have a proper construction foreman to help you build these walls. And they follow a pattern that has been true for all of human history. If you want to stop someone, you can begin by mocking them. You discredit them. You convince them that they're foolish for what they're doing. You attack them at their core. You attack their belief in what it is that they're doing and why they are doing it. You attack them for who they believe that they are. There's no quicker way to quench the flame of passion or derail the momentum of God's calling than to convince us that we never should have started in the first place. And this is what Satan does. And it's what he has done all throughout history. And if that doesn't work, convincing us that we never should have started in the first place, then he tries to convince us that the work we are doing is so bad and we are so bad at it that we, should, we just should quit. Just give up. Quit making a fool of yourself. You're not any good at this. Just stop already. Here's the thing. Every single person in this room, every one of us, we all can relate to this. Whether it's your pastor who continually falls short in everything that I would like to be as a pastor, or those in here that have maybe served in Providence Kids, I'll bet, I'll bet every one of you that has served in Prov Kids at some time has asked the question, what in the world am I doing back here? This does not seem like the place I need to be. Moms? You ever feel like you're just nailing this parent thing? Like, man, this is just good. I am good at this. I'm really, really good at this. Or do you generally kind of feel like, what, I have no clue what's going on, and I, my kids are going to require a lot of counseling by the time they're done with me. Husbands, wives, do you, ever, do you ever ask yourself, why would anyone want to be married to me? I am so bad at this. Why would anyone marry me in the first place? In the first place, single folks, you feel like God picked the wrong person to be single because you're quite convinced it just isn't for you. Teachers, you feel like every student that leaves your class is the next Harvard scholar ready to take on the world. You just feel like you just knock it out of the park with every kid that you're with and every student that comes through in front of you. The reality is whatever task it is that you have before you, whatever it is you seek to do, whatever it is you seek to be, at every turn, you will have someone telling you you are no good at it and you should stop. Sometimes that person will be yourself. But you will always have someone to tell you, hey, you're not as smart as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. You probably need to quit this. Here's a, a, a truism built on the enemies of Nehemiah and, and, and all those that would seek to stop Nehemiah. Anything that you try to do, especially anything that you want to do well, you will always have someone telling you that you're a fool for trying. 
and someone else telling you how bad you are at it. And sometimes that's from the outside, and sometimes that comes straight from yourself. Why is it that there is always someone ready to undercut, to undermine, to mock? Why is it that no matter what it is we try to do, there will always be someone there ready to attack us? It is because we have an enemy. And the last thing that he wants to see is God's people get to work. He does not want to see God's people with their hand to the plow, pushing forward, doing work, cultivating, creating, redeeming, pushing back the darkness. We've said this a lot over the last few weeks. There's nothing, there's nothing that, will, that will stop Satan from pursuing against us as we try to do those things. When Satan sees God's people at work, he gets to work. He wants nothing more than to discourage and discredit. He just wants to stop the work. He doesn't care what else you go about doing. You can, you can, you can go about other good things, things that are just nice, that, that look great, so long as he stops the work that God has called you to do. That's all he wants. Listen to me, wherever you are discouraged this morning, wherever you doubt yourself, where are you convinced that you are worthless? Where do you second guess yourself and wonder, wait a minute, is this even something that I should be doing? Should, should I even be participating? Has God even really called me to this? Where do you second guess? Where do you doubt God? Where do you doubt yourself? Wherever that is, you can be certain that at least part of what is happening there is that Satan has come against you as an enemy. Part of our job as Christians is to not be overcome by that, but instead to step back, to realize that the voice in our head trying to stop the work is not the same voice that called us to the work. God calls us to create, to serve, to build, to care, to comfort, to teach, to disciple. He calls us to all of those things. And Satan wants to undo all of those things. We must have the discernment to step back and recognize where that discouragement and where those accusations are coming from. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Both of them are trying to teach us to open our eyes to say, you are going to be attacked. Satan will come after you. He will come at you, and he will try to discredit you, and he will try to discourage you, and he will try to stop you from the calling. Now, there may be a place where God says, all right, we're done with this work in this place in this moment. That's different than the discouragement and the discredit. 
That's different than, than, than Satan coming forward and saying, you are a fool for what you are doing. You should have never tried in the first place. You know that, that line that he, he has in there? Look at what they're doing. Even a, if a fox runs up on that wall, it's going to knock it over. It's so poorly built. They're so bad at what they do. Why would they even keep on doing this? Can you guys relate to that? Can you guys relate to that kind of accusation in your own heart, and your own mind? Like you're so bad at something, why even try? I, I would bet the house, every person in here can relate to that as something. And I'd probably bet the one in here that you think, I bet that guy doesn't think that. That guy's got so much confidence, he's got so much going for him. That guy's probably the worst, to be honest with you. We're all convinced that everything's just this, this like house of cards. And if we just make one misstep, everything's going to fall and it's going to crumble. We're all convinced that we're just not that good and we're just trying to make it. And if Satan can convince you that you're just not that good and you should quit, you should stop, well, then he will have won. Paul and Peter are both trying to tell us, be aware of this. Have your eyes open to this reality. Step back and be able to see what is going on in the bigger scheme of things. You are not just fighting against your own self-doubt. You are not just fighting against the doubts of others. You are not just fighting against those that would stop the work. There is a bigger enemy that you are fighting with in Satan. And he is always at work. Scripture makes it very clear, Satan will come after you. I have no doubt that if Nehemiah had Paul and Peter's words here, he'd share them with his team. He would tell them this is what's going on. We do have Paul and Peter's words, and I plead with you to listen. There are times whenever I talk to people that are going through struggles, that are dealing with this kind of self-doubt, that are dealing with these kind of things, or they're, they're pulling back, or they're tempted to quit because they're convinced that they're no good at something. There are times whenever I just want to be like, do you not see what is happening? You're not quitting because you're not good. You're, you're quitting because you're afraid. You're afraid of what these voices are telling you. You're at war, and you don't even know it. In those moments when someone seeks to undermine and dismiss your hard work and your pursuit of what you have been called to do, through mockery, through doubts, through questioning, you must be on your guard to call it out for what it is. It is spiritual warfare. And again, I'm not saying that there's not times when God doesn't say, hey, it's time for this season to end. That happens. And you have to be able to discern through His Word, through prayer, through the work of the Spirit, and through the people of God, which it is, whether it is, it is, it is God saying it's time for this season to be done, or whether it's Sanballat and, and Tobiah saying, oh, they're just a joke. They never should have started this in the first place. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that the other person that is sowing these seeds of doubt and that is seeking to undermine and to undercut I'm not saying that that person is Satan either. But I am saying that Satan can use that. And Satan can do that. And you should be aware of how your own words work too. 
that whenever you seek to criticize, whenever you seek to, uh, to, to, to offer unsolicited advice, that whenever you, you, you seek to uh, not come alongside and help, but simply to offer up uh, these, these critical things and say these different things, you, can, you should be aware that Satan can use those words and will use those words. Coming from someone who's not a natural born encourager, be an encourager. I said, I'm sure that Nehemiah would have used Paul and Peter's words if he had them, but he didn't. So what does, what does Nehemiah say in response to what happens here? What is his, his response to the, the opposition that he is now receiving? And let's be clear, these are words at the moment, but they very much were in a dangerous situation where words could turn into something else very quickly. So what are Nehemiah's words in response to these initial accusations. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4. Nehemiah says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then I love this in verse 6. So we built the wall. And we all joined together to half its height, for the people had the mind to work. So what did Nehemiah do? He prayed. He turns his would-be enemies over to God, and he gets back to work. He gets back to work. So we built the wall. What did we do when the enemies came after us? We built the wall. I mean, I think that that's a pretty good response that's a good pattern for us. We pray, and then we get back to work. He doesn't let the mocking and the doubting affect his team. Instead, he pushes his team because he knows they have been called to a task. He knows they're there to work. I love it. It's great. They just get back to work, undeterred from the massive project at hand. But as you might expect, Satan doesn't go away that easily. When they double down on, uh, when, when Nehemiah doubles down on leading, the pressure only increases from the enemies. They won't just go away. And neither does our enemy. So what does Nehemiah do? I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here. I'm going to read all the way through the end of chapter 4, but I'm going to do it because I think, I think it really sets the scene really well. I don't need a whole lot of explanation for what happens because as we read this, I think you'll see, and it's a great picture of how this all unfolds. You can just see it all in your mind's eye. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 7 all the way through the end of uh, the chapter, at least pretty close to the end of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 7. But when San, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. So he was doing good work. They were actually uh, succeeding well beyond uh, their imagination. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Remember, this is not a, a raising tide raises all boats. This is a, a zero-sum game for these guys. If Jerusalem is succeeding, that means that their cities are not. And they cannot have that happen. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. 
In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And the enemy said, they will not know or see till we, uh, see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So we're going to do a surprise attack. They won't even see us because they're, they're so busy building this wall, so hard at work, they won't even see us coming. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Be afraid, Nehemiah. Your enemies are coming. Come back with us out of the city. Walk away from the building of the wall. We saw that with the temple. They walked away from the building of the temple because they were convinced of a problem. And they said, you must return to us. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives and for your homes. Churchill would be proud of this speech. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shield, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So you got a brick in one hand and you got a spear in the other. Come at me. That's basically what they're saying. Bring it on. You want to fight? Let's fight. I'm ready to go, but I'm also going to keep working. I'm not going to be stopped here. I'm not going to be deterred. Bring it on. Let's go. I don't know if that's figurative language or not, like a brick in one hand and a spear in the other, but I love the imagery of it. We'll get to work, but we're ready to fight. Whichever one you all want, we're game. Let's go. Verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we're all spread out. If you hear a trumpet, everybody come running, because that means we're about, to, we're about to throw down. Verse 21, so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were ready. They were ready. They did not let their enemy stop them. Instead, they realized they were in a fight. They were in a war. They were in a battle. And they said, we trust God and my spear. That's what they said. We will fight, and we trust that God will, do, will work in this fight. And we trust God. It's so good. I love the response. Nehemiah says, you want to fight? That's fine. I don't have time for that, but if you come after me, then we'll fight. If that's what you want to do, we'll do it. I'm not scared. We'll be ready when you get here. A brick in one hand, a spear in the other, and they go back to work. 
undeterred. Nothing to stop them. They are ready for what will come. Again, I wonder if Nehemiah had the words of Paul if he wouldn't have told his people something like this. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the the physical picture that you see of Nehemiah on the wall is the spiritual picture for us today. Paul puts it into words for us in Ephesians. The readiness, the preparedness, put on the armor, be ready for the fight. That's the picture that we get here. I wonder if he wouldn't have used some of those same words. You see the people, and Nehemiah says, be ready. Trust God, but be ready. This is true for us today. Trust God in the spiritual battles, but be ready to fight back yourself. Not because God needs your help in this battle, but because this is how God chooses to work and to fight this battle, through us and in us, his people. God could have chosen other ways to build that wall. God could have chosen other ways to do work today. But just as it was then, it is now. He chooses to work through us. He chooses to fight these battles through us. What does Nehemiah do for his people? He pushes them and prepares them for what may be coming. But he never retreats. He never quits. He never runs in fear. Why? Because he's prayed to God for the success of the mission, the protection of the people, and the hindrance of the enemy. And at that point, the battle is God's. And he's good with that. He's good with that. Let that be a lesson for each of us who tend to doubt ourselves, who tend to run in fear, who tend to back away whenever we, we feel the opposition coming, who, who don't, who don't want to deal with the opposition, who don't want to deal with those kind of things, so instead we, we do all we can to avoid it. Nehemiah doesn't back down. Why does he not back down? Not because he's convinced he is strong, but because he's convinced God is strong. And he is good with that. Say the prayer, trust God, and work in that this is the pattern for the christian life we work and then we pray and then we work and then we pray and then we work and then we pray this is what paul says is it not pray at all times without ceasing why because our work is how god uses us and our prayers are our confession that our work is insufficient in and of itself and so are we we need god's protection And we need his blessing if we are to complete his mission.
If God has called you to the mission, your first task is to trust God in that mission. Your second task is then to see it to completion. Finally, I cannot read this chapter. I cannot go through this and hear the taunts of the people. I cannot read through this and not let my mind wander just a bit. I wonder if Nehemiah said that they had half the wall built whenever he delivered his rousing speech there. I wonder if Nehemiah didn't stand on the wall, rally together the people for these new, these new instructions, bring them all together, these common people turned brick masons and construction workers, and try to press them on to the perseverance that is required. I wonder if whenever he gathered them together and he stood up on half of that wall, if he didn't look out over a valley... It was just beyond the wall of the city. And just on the other side of that valley, if he didn't just see a hill shaped like a skull, a hill that would become the place of execution for thousands of criminals, and would become the place where the Son of God would be lifted up on a cross. I wonder if he didn't stand on that wall, look over there and see that very place. And hear the voices of Sanballat and Tobiah echo down through the ages and reverberate off the very wall that Nehemiah is building and back to Jesus through the words of his enemies. Matthew 27, verse 37. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're who you say you are, do what you say you can do. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus, if you are so good, why don't you do these things that you said you could do? Sounds a whole lot like, man, this guy is really not nearly as good as he thinks he is. If a wall runs, if a fox runs up on the wall, the wall's going to fall down. What does he think he's doing? Don't listen to this guy. They mocked Jesus. They told him what he was doing was ridiculous. They told him to come down, to stop the work, to save himself, to walk away. But Nehemiah had a, or, but Nehemiah had a task to finish, and so did Jesus. A job to be done. And neither would be deterred from their mission. Continuing on in Matthew 27, now the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling out Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. The mocking doesn't stop. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up 
his spirit. And we know from John, when he cried out in that loud voice, we know what he said. He said, it is finished. The job is done. I've not been deterred. I've been mocked. I've been beaten. I've been derided. I've had people shaking their heads saying, what a joke. This guy's nothing that he says he is. I've endured all of this. And what does he cry whenever all of that happens? First he says, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Which is really good news. Because we like to think of ourselves as Nehemiah in the story, right? The hero leading the charge. I just wonder how often we're not Sanballat and Tobiah. The one trying to stop the work of God. And we wouldn't say that's what we're trying to do. We would say that we're, you know, we're trying to be cautious. We're trying to, I, I just wonder how often we're not the other people in the story. The enemies of God trying to stop the work. I wonder if we were there that day, if we wouldn't be right alongside all those crying out and mocking Jesus. Too often we read ourselves into the hero of the story when really we're, we're the other guys. Praise God, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I have come to do a job. I have come to complete a task. And then at the very end, Jesus says, it is finished. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. And this is what we so desperately need. That Jesus would finish the task. He would not be deterred. And that task is his death in our place. The work that we do, the work that Nehemiah does, that is pushing back the darkness in a small measure, letting in some piece of the light of the kingdom of God. The work that Jesus did is to push the darkness all the way back, to let the light flood in. This is who we are as Christians. We worship Jesus, the one who finished the task. Friends, this morning you are here and you, you chose to be here on this Mother's Day. You chose to be here and be a part of this day. Hear me whenever I say this. Our trust is in Jesus Christ. We do not work like Nehemiah in order to gain favor with God. We work like Nehemiah because God has shown us favor and we want to bring some small measure of that joy and of that, that light and we want to bring some, some increasing measure of that to this broken world. But it is the finished work of Jesus Christ that we place all of our faith in. If you have not done that this morning, I encourage you. I'll be available at the end. Come, let's pray. Let's talk. 
If you came with somebody, somebody invited you this morning, I would love for you to be able to talk to them and say, no, 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 I don't understand. I thought we were supposed to work, and I thought we, we had these things we were supposed to do, but I, I don't know what it means to just trust in Jesus. That makes me scared. I can't do that. It is the finished work of Jesus is where we find our hope. I pray this morning you will see the work that he has done. And you will find your hope there. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I thank you for the work of Nehemiah. I thank you that he was not deterred. That he built the walls around the city of Jerusalem. I thank you that we have his story of perseverance. I thank you that he did not, he did not bow his head. He did not cow to his enemies. But instead, he trusted you, and he pursued the work. But Father, far greater than that, I thank you that Jesus did not bow to the, the rulers of the age. That he did not hang his head in shame because of the mockery of the people. Instead, he drank down your wrath to the very last drop. Wrath meant for me, meant for us. And when he was done, he said, it is finished. Father, may we all find our hope in that. In Christ's name we pray.